Hello and welcome to the Finding Color in the Darkness podcast. This podcast will feature an interview with our guest today, Dr. Kim Gaddy, who retired in 2018 as a Boston Police Department Sergeant Detective after 36 years of service. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Wheaton College, a Master of Education from Boston University, and a Doctor of Education degree from Boston University. Dr. Gaddy was one of only three other females in the history of the department to serve as a district-level detective supervisor, overseeing Boston's Jamaica Plain, Roslindale, and West Roxbury neighborhoods. The majority of her career involved the direct supervision of detectives. Her assignments included detective supervisor and interim unit commander for the sexual assault unit for eight years, as well as work in the Anti-Corruption Division and Recruit Investigations Unit. Welcome, Dr. Gaddy, who I know as Kim from our long history. Thank you, Margie. So today, Kim, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your experiences, but let's start off with, which there are many of them, but let's talk about your experience as a black woman working in a predominantly white male police force and what that was like and what what sticks out in your mind of some of the, the highs and the lows of that experience. Thank you again for having me, Margie. I will tell you some of the experiences that I've had, but I'll just say, first of all, that I have spent my entire life with predominantly white people, and my experience with the police department pretty much was similar to my experiences in my life. The Boston Police Department are 80 or more percent white males and females. It wasn't much different. However, black women in general are held to a higher standard. What I mean by that is that we hold ourselves to a higher standard and we're expected to perform at least 100% higher at a higher level than the men, black men, white men, and the white females. No matter what we've accomplished, no matter what the level of our professionalism has exhibited throughout our career, we continually have to prove ourselves every time we walk in the room, every time we enter a situation. We are on display. That never changed in 36 years. Also, men challenge you. They challenge you because they don't believe, in general, that you're supposed to be there, that you can do the job, that you will protect them in dangerous situations. They feel like they may have to protect you, which has never been my experience. It's always been an equal kind of an interaction when danger arises. It's just, it depends on the individual, and most women up to the the standards that, that are required in order to do the job. My experience has been that the women supersede the expectations. I would have to agree with that, just looking at your resume and seeing all that you've done and all that you've accomplished beyond the obvious degrees that you hold. You were a part of the sexual assault unit, and you implemented a sexual harassment and assault prevention education program mm-hmm and a 40-hour rape certification training program, if perhaps Mm -hmm. you can explain it better than I am, but tell us about that. Along with having to put yourself at a higher standard because you're challenged so often just by perceptions of people on the street as well as your coworkers, a lot of us have to think outside of the box in terms of how we're going to be most effective. I mean, that works best because we don't fit into the traditional paradigm of what a police officer looks like, and people just don't know what to expect. So I kind of just took that ball and ran with it and thought outside of the box, what can I do to make changes that I thought would be progressive within the department and also serve the community 
in ways that had not been addressed in a way that I thought were the most effective ways prior to my taking on different uh, projects myself. So with the sexual harassment assault prevention education curriculum, it was a program that addressed high school, middle school students. And I just created something based on the D.A.R.E. program, which is a five-part curriculum, and basically didn't reinvent the wheel, just put in the spaces, the, the content that I needed to address sexual harassment and assault and prevention in the middle schools and high schools in Boston. And it was accepted through the health program, through the Boston public schools and some of the parochial schools for a couple of years. And it was completely volunteer on the part of the police officers that I asked to participate in. And it was very successful. So that was one program that I took on myself. And then the other, the mandated training for a rape investigator, I say mandated because it's the only unit within the police department that is by law mandated for rape investigators to go through this 40-hour course in order to investigate any crime. Even homicide doesn't have a mandated training. But sexual assault, because of the sensitivity and the devastation of these kinds of assaults, and to make sure that we address the victim's issues properly, I decided that the existing uh, mandated courses that were available just did not address the issues on a wide range of topics that are involved around sexual assault. It's a really complex topic and uh, a crime where very few cases ever get prosecuted and even less people get convicted. So it's critical to try to address those issues so that we can serve the victims and decrease the amounts of sexual assault. Did you, that seems to me that it's, it's groundbreaking, but it shouldn't be groundbreaking. It mm. should have been done a long time ago. Did mm. you encounter resistance to this training program? No, I actually didn't encounter any resistance. I encountered a lot of support because people felt that this course was lacking in proper content and people really wanted more information and more education and more training on situations that they addressed on a daily basis and those were not covered in the mandated training necessarily. I mean some of them were but very few. Like I said, it's very nuanced. It's a very specialized crime. The victims are different than any other crime. It's the worst crime you can experience outside of homicide. So there was a real need and there was a real support for this unique type of presentation of training program. We had all kinds of people who were directly related in sexual assault crimes and the prosecution and the treatment and support and advocacy of victims, as well as experts on perpetrator behavior and profiling of sexual assault perpetrators that was never covered before, like, for instance, date rape types of uh, behavior that is predatory but seen as innocuous. I mean, we delved into the issues that are not typically covered but affect more and more people every day, more and more women, more and more men. So it was a really unique kind of a training that was a holistic training. And we also had like uh, mock interviews, mock situations, 
And overall, it got an incredible positive review from the participants, as well as those that came to speak that had never been asked to speak in this kind of a forum before. They really appreciated the chance to talk to investigators and let them know what they needed to do their job in their agencies. So that was a unique approach, and I can't say more about how happy I was that the outside agencies were so thrilled to be involved, and finally they got a chance to tell the cops, this is how you need to testify, this is what you need to look for, this is how you need to advocate for victims, this is what I do every day, and we see a shortage of a concern or maybe just education for police officers that we exist to support their job. So it was a really incredibly rewarding experience for me to put it together. That's incredible. And it's it's amazing that um, you were able to do this and get people to be on board with something that should have oh, happened yeah. quite some time ago. The, the sexual harassment program, well, that, yeah. that's something separate, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's separate. That was the, the sexual harassment and assault prevention education program was directed at middle school and high school students. And it was akin to the D.A.R.E. program. How do we prevent? What are the issues around sexual harassment and assault that affect you in school and outside of school as young people. And we we had a lot of role play because kids love role play, which I didn't know. And we would present situations so that they could identify sexual assault on, on their own part. Because at the time, I don't know if you remember, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, WWF, was really big. And these kids were getting in trouble because they were inadvertently committing indecent assault and battery on on each other rolling around in the in in the you know I mean this is one one issue that I brought they they weren't familiar with the fact that you can't touch people in certain areas now there's an issue of intent involved but the fact of the matter is is that somebody can be traumatized by you touching a part of their body that is a private part and we wanted to educate them on what you can and cannot do legally without any intimidation, just education, as well as educate them on if these things happen to you, these are your resources, and you don't don't just pretend that they didn't happen and live in silence over these things. They may seem like it's not a big deal, but this is these are the laws, and, and if you feel like you have been assaulted, you can report it because it is a real thing. This came out around the same time as the whole anti-bullying movement came out. So harassment is just, it's a type of bullying, but people don't like to talk about it. It's a very touchy subject, especially for young people. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't know what's going on. So we identified issues that we knew affected young people, but they may not necessarily know that they were actionable or that they should get help for it. It was a very innocuous way of presenting this information and this education so that it would prevent them from becoming victims. It would also prevent them from becoming perpetrators because there are children or young people who have records for indecent assault and battery. And I think most of it is or could be because of a lack of education or knowledge around the law. And we're trying to prevent these kids from getting records because they're teenagers and and younger. And they make mistakes. And they make mistakes. And it's very important because people don't always understand when they are the victims. They know they've they feel differently about something, but they mm. can't give voice to that. They can't right. identify that. And the perpetrators don't understand that they've had an impact on this person's life. So that's a very important part mm. of, of that education yeah. piece. Mm. Let's talk about your experience as a black woman. Can you give us some 
specifics of discrimination working in a predominantly white male police force. I, I can give you some examples of how I was treated differently. As a sergeant detective in the district, which was for a period of about eight years, whenever they, there was a new initiative or training challenge, they would do this analysis of these different mock situations across the city to determine whether we were performing effectively as supervisors as well as a detective unit. I would always be the first person or the first sergeant detective to have to be carted out to one of these scenarios. It is significant that out of 11 different districts, I would be the first one on the chopping block, so to speak, to determine whether all sergeant detectives and their teams are living up to the standards that the department sought to achieve. I knew I had to live up to a higher standard and it just became my own personal protocol. That's one example. Obviously, I've been a black female my entire life and I'm used to it. A friend of mine asked me recently, what is it like for you? The level of awareness that I have about the fact that I'm a black female is kind of like walking through a snowstorm and there's all these flakes. You see them everywhere. They're all around you. And those are all the little microaggressions, little things, little nuanced things that affect me as a black woman. And they're just dropping all around me. And I walk through them every single day. I see all those snowflakes and I walk through them. And I, at the end of the day, I'm wet. And I don't think about them the way maybe people think that I think about them. I don't take them as personally, the things that people say. I just know that they're there. I can't not see them. That really encapsulates how I walk through my day. For instance, uh, as a black female, I like shopping. And so I would have to think about whether I wanted to, I had the energy to go in there and shop and know that I was not intentionally being watched. But, you know, if something fell off a counter and broke, I would know that I would be the person that they would look to first. Maybe not intentionally, uh, because people are essentially good, I believe. But I know that I'm noticed. There's no such thing as people don't see color. Of course you see color. I see color. So unless everybody else has got something wrong with their eyes, it's just a matter of fact. And I try not to like focus on it, and I really don't, but I'm aware of it all the time, like the snowflakes around me. And my friend who asked me about this, and I described it that way, he's like, so what can I do to help? And I said, just walk with me. Walk with me through the snow. And really, it's as simple as that. You don't have to do anything. You just have to notice the same things or try to see the same snowflakes like I see every day. Maybe that will do something for you to make you feel better about knowing me. And it will absolutely make you my ally. You'll be there. I'll have somebody else walking through it too. It's a powerful metaphor, and I think that you have become accustomed to it, but it's still, yeah. for me, listening to that experience, I mm -hmm. found it traumatic, but you, no. you are comfortable with it because it's, it's your reality. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not my reality, but, yeah. but it's, it is, we, we all know, we hear the stories of people being profiled constantly mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and certainly by the police. Ben, my co-host, mm -hmm. a question for you, if you'd like to go ahead, Ben. Yes. Uh, I really like that analogy too. Thank you. Um, as an officer, what are your views on the Black Lives Matter movement 
Well, I absolutely support Black Lives Matter, and I'm not going to entertain a discussion on why it should exist. I say that I do support it, absolutely, obviously as a Black person, but as a person who knows that there are injustices, defects, and dysfunction, and there are systemic in law enforcement. That's the bottom line. Those systemic issues that lead up to and include death a lot of times of black people have to be addressed. That's it, period, end of story. So I do support Black Lives Matter, and it's obvious why anybody should support Black Lives Matter. Do you believe in defunding the police? I don't believe in defunding the police because I don't think that would address what people are trying to address, which is effective and fair and functional police work. I think that you need to start at the top and replace all of the current management with professionals who have been vetted and who are accountable to the effective and fair performance of a police department. And it is especially important to eliminate those people who keep the dysfunctional ball rolling. I would say that most police departments cannot police their own. In my experience of 36 years, they don't do it. The role of the police should be to serve and protect. You have to have administrators that that is their primary goal. And it's a genuine goal. And in order to determine that they genuinely hold that position, there has to be accountability and it has to be an accountability that is determined by an outside agency that will be able to quantify and qualify this performance. How do you think we avoid a we-them situation or how do we overcome that? You overcome that from leadership and education, but especially leadership that believes in education, that needs to be said. And that leadership has to be accountable, and it has to be held accountable routinely for their performance. So education is the answer, but the education has to be supported by the leadership. If the leadership doesn't support the education and there's no accountability measurements in place, then you're just spinning the wheel that we've been spinning for as long as I've been a police officer. Accountability is key. If people do not perform at management levels or at leadership levels, they should be removed and replaced with people who are vetted and have a proven performance and a professional capacity to make the changes that affect the department in a positive way, in a progressive way. Okay, now we're moving on to... Uh dark subject, but as we do in this this, uh, podcast, we go from the darkness to the hope and the light. We talked earlier before the podcast about having lost colleagues and subordinates and friends to Mm -hmm. suicides. Can you tell me about that, uh, those experiences, both from your own perspective and from seeing those around you and how, how they deal with it? My experience with suicide first occurred as a police officer. I was 24, and I can tell you there have been so many that I don't remember how many I have responded to. I just don't know. There are some cases that I do remember, and what I remember about them is that there are no means to prepare a police officer for the first suicide or the numerous others they will encounter in their career. 
I personally felt very alone at my first suicide response. It's kind of hard to explain, but I wasn't alone. I was a patrol officer when I responded, and there were other officers around me, medical examiners and the EMTs, and there were plenty of people around, but it, it has the effect of making you feel very alone in this experience because it's not talked about. It's a very perfunctory kind of a response and certain expectations, things you have to do. And I saw myself at that scene and I was performing what I needed to perform, but you kind of just feel alone with this individual that's taken their life in a way that I've never felt in, in any other crime or any other response situation as a part of my job. It really takes you inside yourself and you see this individual as an individual, as a human heart. And there's no preparation for that. And the loss, you feel that loss of a human being alone. It's almost like you know that person. You, you want to know that person. And it would happen in all subsequent suicides that I attended. You just feel a connection. I don't know what that is or why it happens, but even though there are people milling around, you get EMTs, firefighters, and whoever else is there, your other officers, it's a very solitary feeling. I felt a connection to that person who had passed away by their own hand in a way that I don't feel in other, other crimes, of course. This is the most personal encounter that you have with a person, an individual, and it's the last time that they will be seen. This is very interesting to me because I happen to have run into uh, one of the police officers or detectives that was here the mm -hmm. night that my son took his life. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, he told me that it was his first suicide wow. and this is a small town mm. so they really don't have many or haven't had many mm. historically but there happened to have been two other suicides after my son's suicide mm. and because it's a small department they decided to do a debriefing and talk about it just on a minimal sort of mm. uh, way but in a minimal way but they were most shocked by my son's suicide because the mother, quote unquote, was present on scene. Mm -hmm. And to see that, and I was in a catatonic state. Mm. But to hear your words, I have to say that I felt that in my core. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a powerful thing. So it you is. don't have to explain like what it is that feeling is I could feel it. And yeah. you know, with every bit yeah. of my being that, yeah. and because the will to live is so strong from everything I've researched mm. and People think when somebody takes their life that they're a coward, and it's, no. it couldn't be further from the truth. It's no. it's uh, it's very hard, and there are usually many previous suicide attempts, and it, suicide is the result of a long-term mental health illness in 90% of the cases. Yeah. And when you think about it, it I mean, I think I, I know I have having lost a son, mm -hmm. and a lot of people that have come to a point where they feel so destitute that they considerate mm. but when you think about implementing a plan it's oh no oh no mm. no so mm. it really takes a lot to go there and mm. to, to thank you for sharing that because that was very powerful for me and, and meant a lot I just have to add to that my experience in every suicide 
honestly, I do still feel the presence of that person. I can, I walk in there and the things that I have to do and I feel that presence. I did not know this person. I feel it. And I mean, in my job, we have to look for evidence of any kind of um, connection to this, this event. Just being among that individual's personal belongings or anything that he or she may have touched or the place that they lived when they left this earth is incredibly impactful. And not that I, you know, I'm not frozen and I have to work, but it, I feel that the entire time. And I know what that feeling is because I've experienced it so many times. And it's, and it's an honor for me in a way to be there at that scene and make sure that everything is handled with dignity. I can't express how important that is to me. And it always is, or had been when I would respond. I absolutely insisted upon it. Didn't, and you said you had friends too that had died by suicide. Yes, I've, I, I've had eight, at least eight colleagues kill themselves that I knew personally I had met not not maybe not been good friends with or anything like that but definitely had talked to and you know engaged with at least eight that I knew several of them I knew closely a couple of them were classmates of mine in the academy and one of them had worked for me as a detective that individual prior to the event with them I had spent almost a year trying to get that person, that help that was needed because it was very apparent to me that they were suffering from a wide range of mental health and physical health issues. The unfortunate thing with police officers is that we have this bravado, we have this facade, mm-hmm. and we also have this mantra that, you know, this thin blue line, we're all gonna take care of each other. And for this individual, when I initiated getting them the certain kinds of physical and mental health issues addressed in the services that they needed, they pulled back. This individual had been a celebrated officer and detective for many years. However, because of the the status that this person held within the department, people tried to take care of the person. So they they had problems with drugs. The individual had problems with drugs, problems with alcohol, problems with not showing up at work, problems at not doing the casework that they needed to do, just problems across the board that for me and anybody else that was paying attention, it was a clear sign that they needed help. Because of the status of this individual as a celebrated cop, people around this person constantly tried to shield them from any kind of disciplinary actions for their bad behavior. The person would get transferred out of a unit where a supervisor might be demanding that they get help. They had all kinds of support that eventually caused this person's downfall because there was no accountability for uh, the, the poor behavior. There was no accountability for them not showing up because people wanted to take care of them. That person did end up taking their life. They never got the help they needed because so many people were protecting them. It was a tragic situation that could have been avoided many times 
along the road for that person. But people are in denial about these issues. They don't want to deal with them. They're difficult. But we have to deal with them. We have to be real about it. You can't protect people by pretending the things that are going wrong with them are not so bad. They get a pass. If you don't give them that pass, that could lead to them getting the help that they need. They are held accountable. And that doesn't happen a lot with police officers. Was there any movement to try and do a debriefing and and uh, sort of a help program for police officers? I would have to say, in general, no. In the 36 years that I spent with the Boston Police Department, I'd never been debriefed for anything. Wow. However, many departments do due diligence in having their officers attended to, attending to debriefings in critical situations. They, they mandate the training. It, it is what needs to be done in all critical incidents that are major incidents. There should be some kind of protocol that maybe once a year, I don't know what the time period would be, but officers should be evaluated for how things are going with them on the job, what they've experienced. I don't know how you would set that up, but there there has to be a way that you address on a continual basis, and not anything threatening, but just as a matter of practice for the health and safety of your officers, uh, address mental health issues, or at least try to determine whether somebody needs help before they end up arrested or harming somebody in a domestic violence situation or harming somebody on the street, those kinds of issues have got to be addressed in a more definitive, ongoing way for police officers. Imagine the things that they see every day. It just seems like common sense, but it apparently is not common sense to a lot of administrators. So we've just had a very difficult subject about yeah. that darkness, and but a very important piece because first responders do encounter post-traumatic stress and we can't just dismiss them unilaterally mm-hmm. as the police that mm-hmm. are getting this bad reputation and there are mm-hmm. good and bad people within any organization. But now, moving from that darkness into the light, mm-hmm. the color, I'd like to quote an article from your college newspaper after you retired. The first piece of equipment retiring Sergeant Detective Kim Gaddy turned in was her radio. At that moment, she unexpectedly felt the gravity of parting with a piece of equipment that, for more than her three decades with the Boston Police Department, had proven so crucial to her work. The radio literally has saved my life and the lives of other people. It has solved people's problems, made people's lives better, and inverted crisis, Gaddy said. When I turned in the gun, I was relieved I didn't have to worry about it anymore. But the radio was all about community and communication and what we do. And later, there is this. People thank me more often than criticize. It has been a very rewarding job. It has felt great to make someone's life a little easier, safer, and better. So thinking back to your happier moments and the reaching out to the community, and is there something that comes to mind that you could share? Being a police officer was the absolute best thing, the best job I could possibly have had. I enjoyed the job thoroughly. There were challenges, but I was able and given the opportunity a lot of the time to be 
Kim Gaddy and do the job and find ways to do the job that fit my personality and allowed me to grow. The very best people I've ever met in my life were cops. The very worst people I met in my life have been cops, unfortunately, too. But it was the best job. I look back on it with honor and dignity and pride at having been able to make a difference here and there, every day, somehow, in people's lives. Either my coworkers, my detectives, the patrolmen, the people on the street especially, and kids. I can't think of any way I could have been more effective in so many ways, and I just feel it was a blessing to be able to have done that job for so many years. And you've certainly influenced a lot of people's lives and had an impact on making this world a better place. I have no doubt about that. Can you also reference our next guest that we'll be having who was a mentor to you, Cheryl Pichon? Yes, Sergeant Cheryl Pichon. Um, I came to meet her late in my career, but I had heard about her from the very beginning. She's a legend in the department. She is the first or was the first black female sergeant, and she as well worked in the district for her entire career. She was a district level sergeant, and she is just the most remarkable person I've ever met. She's got a great sense of humor, and she was one not to be messed with. Cheryl had the respect of everyone that she worked with and who she worked for. She had, uh, it was incredibly challenging for her to be the first black female sergeant but she left the department with the respect of everybody there there's no one that i have ever heard i've never heard a bad word about her she's just an exemplary police sergeant and i am proud to have her as my friend she's had some difficult experiences and i think you'll be really happy to talk to her she's different than me but i respect her I respect her more than any other police officer that I know. Can you think of a question that you would like to ask her when we interview her? For my heroes, Sergeant Cheryl Pichon, I'd like to ask her, how did you do it all those years? What's your secret? Perfect, mm-hmm. perfect. And now um, on our closing note, what is one of your favorite lines for, uh, from either a song or a book or a movie? One of my favorite quotes is by Helen Keller. She said, I would rather walk with a friend in the dark than alone in the light. Perfect. So I want to thank you, Kim, my friend, and Dr. Gaddy, to those who don't know her well, for being our guest today. Um, It's been a really special uh, time interviewing you and hearing your perspectives, which are so very unique. So on behalf of myself, Margie, and my co-host, Ben, we thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful experience. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. And for those of you who are interested in being on our podcast, you can email us at findingcolorinthedarkness at gmail.com. Thank you so much and have a wonderful week.